So you found yourself at the doorstep of our post-issue pump, your chance to unlock some of the hidden gems in our most recent journal issue. Welcome to another episode of the Global Health Chat. I'm Tara, and in today's discussion, we'll be exploring the role of internet searches in the prediction of an outbreak. Joining me in this virtual space is AMSA Global Health's very own IT specialist, Dan Bill. Hello. (laughs) Hello. So stick around as we flesh out his literature review on now casting with Google Trends. And a quick disclaimer... Uh, We're not data scientists here, just two curious students stepping a little beyond our conventional medical curriculum. So I guess without further ado, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Great to have you. So I'm going to jump in and say Dan is a tech prodigy. So instead of the conventional get to know you question, I thought, Dan, maybe you could start by sharing two of your top tech tips. And maybe also the experiences that brought you to these technological epiphanies. Oh, okay. Uh, tech prodigy is, uh, <laughs> you're talking me up a lot. So <laughs> I really yeah. have to think about this. Um, Got I guess the rest of this I, episode to prove yourself. <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> Time is ticking. Let me know how I do. Say the right words. Um, two top tech tips. I think my first one would be, um, this one is sort of directed to, I guess, anybody that does any like, serious work on a computer who does a lot of, who spends a lot of time working at a laptop or a desktop, Hmm. a second monitor makes a world of difference. This is something I learned probably far too late, like when I was in year 12. But if you do a lot of writing, if you do any sort of content creation on your computer, a second monitor, it's like, it's like doubling the size of your desk. It gives gives you so much more space to work with and being able to have two documents open at once. I I can't sell this enough. It makes a world of difference. I've been meaning to do that. This might be the the little nudging I need. (laughs) Yeah. Of course, it's one of those things that depends on, you know, how much, um, how much spare money you have burning a hole in your pocket. But um, the second one would probably be control shift V. So for anyone who doesn't know, control shift V pastes without formatting. So if you want to paste like text into a document on Google docs or word control shift V paste without formatting. So no, none of that, like playing around with like the font to making it match your document, playing playing around with the size of the font, anything like that. Control shift V saves me so much time over the past however many, I don't even know. Look, I'm going to need this because I'm a formatting perfectionist. And I'm guessing for any Apple users, that would be command shift V. I'll have to give that a shot. I'll get back to you on that Awesome. And with technology weaved into your article, it's certainly a very trendy 21st century topic and especially pertinent to the current climate of things. I just love how you use Google Trends as your lens into epidemiology. Like, could you get more topical than that? Yeah. So for those who don't know, Google Trends, it's a freely available online tool where essentially people can go on and they can type in search queries and see how many people have searched for that particular thing over time, over the past week or over the past month or the past year or the past hour. Um, They can see how popular that particular search has been over time. Um, And you can filter that information chronologically. You can filter that information by location to see where people are searching it for. And 
this tool was initially developed by Google. It was published in 2004, and it was its main goal was just to be a tool to in to research public interest into any particular topic, just how many people are interested in whatever they were searching for. But naturally, people started to wonder. Well, you know, if somebody is feeling a bit sick, you know, maybe they have the flu, they might want to do a Google search for flu. You know, like we all do. We all, I think, we can all safely admit <laughs> we use Google. the internet quite a, quite a bit for just trying to find health related information. So it's not unfeasible that people might use the internet to look up health related information when they're feeling a bit unwell, regardless of whether or not they go and see a doctor about it. So people started to wonder. Well, maybe maybe we can look at how many people are searching for influenza, for example, and that can give us an idea of how many people at that point in time might actually have the flu. So people started to wonder, maybe we could use this tool as a way to model or predict how many people have a certain infectious disease over time, like and pretty much in real time. So this remained pretty theoretical up until 2009. In 2009, Google published a, another freely available online tool called Google Flu Trends, which essentially did exactly that. What it did was it was an algorithm that used the, it took the relative search volume of 45 different weighted search terms, pumped them through an algorithm and spat out a prediction of how many people in the United States had the flu at that specific time. And it would calculate these numbers on a weekly basis. And the original white paper that Google published alongside Google Flu Trends showed that Google Flu Trends could actually predict the incidence of influenza in the United States with an accuracy of about 97%, wow. which is really, really impressive. That's crazy. 97%. Yeah. yeah, 97%. So this naturally, this caused quite a bit of hubbub in the world of epidemiology. A lot of people started to take Google Trends as a, a digital epidemiology surveillance tool. They took it a lot more seriously than they had done previously. <laughs> Google flu trends, for anybody who knows a bit more about it, might know it suffered a few setbacks later on in its life, but we'll talk about them a little bit later. Mm. But this was very much the starting point of Google trends as a tool for investigating infectious diseases and potentially tracking infectious outbreaks. Yes. And so what I was doing in my literature review was trying to look at what attempts have been made and what progress has been made in this area. Like to what degree can we use Google Trends as a tool to investigate infectious diseases and track them and their spread? John, just let me get this yeah. straight. With influenza, you would be pretty much defining about 45 keywords and weighing them each accordingly. So I guess your more relevant terminologies and keywords you'd be putting down are maybe the more frequent symptoms of flu and the more stereotypical symptoms. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So these 45 terms that Google used to make Google flu trends, um, they ranged you know, from anything from just straight up searching the word influenza or the word flu, just searches for the disease. They included things like symptoms of influenza. So people searching things like fever, cough, chills, and also things that might not be immediately obvious, but could potentially suggest that somebody searching it might have the flu. For example, searches on where to buy paracetamol, for example. Mm. Um, so all of these, all of these searches can potentially indicate that somebody might have the flu and that their search behavior might be influenced by their current state of health. So that was the sort of idea behind it. Certainly certain search terms correlate better with real world incidents more than others. And so these 45 terms were weighted depending on that. So yeah, you do yeah. need to keep in mind which ones are more accurate and which ones are less accurate. Yeah. I guess something that it draws me towards, because we're talking about surveillance and obviously we do already have established traditional methods for surveillance, which involve active case finding, contact tracing, you know, the mandatory reporting of notifiable conditions, 
collecting data from different registers. You know, the list is quite extensive or some may say thorough. Why, why the shift then to digital surveillance? Um, I think the first thing to note was that would be that digital surveillance tools like Google Trends models are not a replacement for traditional surveillance. They're more an adjunct to traditional surveillance. They're not, you know, I'm not saying we can, you know, shut down the CDC and we just need to use Google Trends <laughs> as our primary source of information. It's not going to work like that. No. But Google Trends definitely does, it definitely does have a few really significant advantages over these traditional surveillance models with things like case notification and compiling and publishing um, incidents reports. So uh, there are a few important, yeah, so there are a few benefits. Perhaps the biggest one is speed. So with traditional surveillance, uh, there are a lot of steps in the process of reporting the incidence of diseases. You know, there's firstly, there's the time it takes from somebody getting sick to actually seeing a doctor about it. And then there's the time for that doctor to report that to uh, a health, a, a public health body. And then there's the time for that public health body to process the data and publish it in a formal report. All of these steps add time. And I think especially, you know, in the context of COVID-19, we've learned that those few extra days can make a really huge significant difference, difference in, yeah, they can make a huge difference in uh, how quickly we're able to get on top or how effectively we're able to get on top of an outbreak. Mm. So with Google Flu Trend, for example, Google was initially boasting that they could predict outbreaks of influenza up to two weeks faster or two weeks wow. earlier than the CDC could because they could bypass all of these extra, uh, th these extra steps and these extra things that add time to reporting. For sure. Um, another, another really significant uh, example of that I found was uh, a paper that was trying to model scarlet fever in the UK. The UK had an outbreak of scarlet fever back in 2012. And a sort of retrospective analysis, analysis of that found that that outbreak could have been predicted with a Google flu trends model up to five weeks before it actually occurred. Five weeks? What yeah, a world so, of difference that would have made. Yes, it would have been an enormous difference. So, yeah, the the actual times, the the actual times would vary depending on what exactly the the disease is, and I guess the quality of the traditional surveillance that already exists. Mm -hmm. But you can see how having that extra time to prepare and allocate resources for a potential outbreak could make a really big difference, and you know, especially in terms of adequate staffing for emergency departments and clinics. Um, yeah. So I think that that is one of the really key benefits. Yeah. Another one is also cost. So for Google sure. flu trends, Google true, Google trends is freely available online and anybody can access it. Whereas traditional surveillance requires a lot of uh, planning and infrastructure and, and administration to sort of make it work. Um, digital epidemiology, by contrast, tends to be a lot easier to set up, doesn't require as much maintenance and as much active staffing. And also, um, it's just generally cheaper to maintain. So you can imagine that this would have benefits in terms of um, its ability to be deployed in especially in resource poor areas where public health infrastructure oh, yes. might be a bit more lacking. Um, the definitely how cheap digital epidemiology can be yeah. is a really important factor to consider. And then the final thing is synergy. So Google trends data doesn't necessarily have to be used alone. There are ways to incorporate Google trends data 
and combine it with traditional surveillance data to create models which are potentially a bit less prone to bias and a bit more accurate than either of those data sets being used on their own. Um, so, you know, as, as I mentioned a bit earlier, these Google, these Google Trends models don't necessarily need to be used on their own. They can be used as an adjunct to traditional surveillance, not as a total replacement. This, you know, does rely on the quality of the underlying data and such. But yeah, I yeah. want to pause you there for a moment. Uh, you mentioned sure. quality of data. Mm-hmm. That that's something that I, I was kind of thinking about for for a moment there. I mean, I've searched up COVID nineteen at least fifty two times in the past four months, but my my test never came back positive. So. Yeah, I'm beginning to wonder how accurate and representative this data really is. Yeah, that's a really good point you bring up. There's definitely a lot of limitations with Google Trends models. As you know, as much as I've liked to harp on about how mm-hmm. potentially revolutionary they can be, they do have some setbacks. And that one you just mentioned about the bias of or the influence of people searching for certain terms when they might not actually be sick is a really significant one. Um, because Google cannot distinguish between people who are searching for COVID nineteen because they have COVID nineteen, or people who are searching for it just because they want to keep up with the latest news, or people searching <laughs> exactly. for it because they're an academic and are doing research. Mm. Uh, so definitely the more prevalent a certain disease is in the media, the more that can potentially have an impact on how accurate these Google Trends models can be. I think the best example of this is Google Flu Trends. So uh, you remember how I said earlier that if they Google initially said it could have an accuracy of 97%? Yeah. Yeah. So that was the case roughly for about four years or so after it was published from 2009 to 2013. But in 2013, the US had a, a quite an unusual seasonal influenza outbreak in that it came quite early, a lot earlier than expected. And it was also a particularly deadly one. And so for that reason, it got a lot more media coverage than it otherwise would have. And a lot of more pe- a lot more people were searching for the flu than mm-hmm. in previous yeah. years. So you can imagine what this did to the Google flu trends model. You can imagine it Google flu trends over predicted how many people yeah. had the flu by a significant margin, by a factor of two. So they predicted the wow. peak to be double. Double. Yeah, double what it actually was. So Insane. yeah, as a result, Google flu trends got a lot of negative press for it. Um, and Google made a few revisions to the algorithm in the few in the following years, but it never quite recovered. And so they eventually pulled the plug in 2015. So Google Flu Trends is no longer available online, unfortunately. You can find archival data, but it's no longer actively monitoring influenza. I mean, that kind of makes sense with something that is as broad as influenza. The symptoms, you know, there's a whole spectrum of symptoms. I feel like it would be so difficult to narrow down your search terms and not have it overlap with other factors. And it's definitely covered in the media as well it's it's something that is definitely on the news so i'd be interested to see whether you know google would be looking towards somehow incorporating the news and the media into this algorithm because like it evidently has a role as a confounding factor here yeah yeah absolutely i think it comes down to ultimately picking search terms well Mm. and picking search terms that are probably are more more associated with people who are actually sick rather than people who are just searching for information. So for example, if you had the flu, you might be more likely to search things like I have a fever, you know, whereas somebody who's just curious about the flu and the current outbreak would be less likely to search that specific term. Um, so searching for particular symptoms might play a role in sort of making these algorithms a bit more sophisticated. There is also the possibility that maybe we can analyze online news sources, look for the popularity of a particular disease in the, in the news at a specific time and use that as a sort of control to reduce the impact of that searches from people who aren't unwell 
That makes sense. So instead of, um, I guess, instead of mere keywords, incorporating more personalized phrases is what you're saying. And that, that could really highlight, you know, the difference between someone that is interested in the topic as an academic, as a student, as a researcher versus someone actually experiencing the symptoms themselves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's about being clever with which search terms we want to use. Um, there are a few other limitations as well. It's not just news and media bias. Um, For example, another thing that I found through my literature search is that these models tend to be very context sensitive. This is, this sort of makes sense. I mean, people's internet usage and search behavior is changing all the time and how they use the internet depends a lot on sociodemographic factors, things like how old the population is, how much of the population has access to the internet, what Mm. their education level is like, how popular Google is in that particular area, all of these things have an impact on how well the search model works. And so for that reason, you can't just take a model that's been built for one part of the world and transplant it to another part of the world, just a copy and paste kind of deal. Um, You know, like there, there have been attempts to model, been attempts to model things like the Ebola outbreak in 2014 in West Africa, Mm. and also a recent plague outbreak in Madagascar. And these models in general have not worked nearly as well as the influenza one in the United States or other models that have been built for developed countries, things like HIV and syphilis. Yeah. So just because Google is probably not as widespread a tool in those regions. Yeah. Well, our understanding of how these sort of sociodemographic graphic factors influence how effective these models can be. Mm. Our understanding there is still pretty limited. It's one of those things that there's, there needs to be more research done on, Okay. but it's very clear that there is an impact there. Yep. So it's one of those things that it is important to keep that in mind. And that's something that, 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 that context sensitivity isn't something that is as, uh, as much of an issue with traditional surveillance. And then the final point that probably worth touching on is geographical resolution. The, the fact is with these Google Trends models is that the more you zoom in on a particular population, the less accurate and the less reliable these models tend to be. So if you're looking at, for example, influenza at a countrywide level, you could have a model that is potentially quite effective like Google Flu Trends. But as soon as you start to zoom in to like the state level or the individual town, then these models tend to be a lot more sensitive to just random fluctuations and tend to be in general less accurate. Um, I think perhaps one of the best examples of this is Google Dengue Trends. So Google Dengue Trends was a tool that was built by Google using a similar methodology to Google Flu Trends to track dengue. Mm -hmm. But one analysis of Google Dengue Trends in Mexico found that although it worked quite well at a countrywide level in Mexico, as soon as you zoomed into the state level, that accuracy of the tool varied anywhere from as high as 88% to as low as 1%, which is not even close to being statistically significant. Mm. Yeah. So there's definitely Um, an issue there with precision, but also with generalizability of the data. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. There's, there's definitely limitations that exist and our understanding of where exactly those limitations are coming from and where those limitations exactly lie. That's not what's really well understood at this point in time. That's something that Mm. more research will need to be done on. And I guess that's where, you know, medical students could potentially step in as well. I think it's fun yeah, having these gaps in knowledge because it gives you a chance to really think for yourself once in a while, not having the textbook feed you information. You know, I love what you said about digital surveillance, its ability to kind of work alongside traditional surveillance methods. Uh, like you've highlighted certain limitations, but also certain strengths. And we can all testify to the fact that pandemics do unravel 
unravel fairly abruptly and things do change by the minute. And with both digital and traditional methods, we can hopefully one day marry speed with accuracy. But I still do wonder how ethical this all is. You know, you're using non-health data for health purposes. That really does raise new questions about where we draw that line between the public good and the individual right to privacy. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really important point you bring up and probably something a lot of people at home have been thinking about for the duration Mm. of this podcast. Um, Google, you know, Google's business model, they are a private company and their business model pretty much relies on collecting data and selling people personalized ads. Yep. Uh, so I think naturally people start to wonder, well, how comfortable am I you know, having this kind of data tracked by a private company as opposed to a public company that is you know, a bit more, I guess, susceptible to the public eye and public scrutiny. Yep. Um, it's worth mentioning that Google Trends is, all the data on Google Trends is completely de-identified. So you know, Google doesn't track like your IP address and tag that along with what, whatever you're searching. Mm. But it is an important question to ask, you know, because ultimately the things that I type into Google, that's not health data, right? People yeah. like the, the types of things I type into the search engine are not health data in the same way that like specific diagnoses on my medical record might be. So it's a question we have to ask ourselves, how comfortable are we in companies and governments using non-health data, like the things we search on the internet or the things we buy at the grocery store or the messages we send to our friends, how comfortable are we with having that data be used for public health purposes? Mm. Because it's very different. That kind of data collection is very different to data that's being collected for the purposes of profit, which Google might collect it for. Mm. Um, I, this this is a really big question. I'm not purporting to have an answer to this. Um, this is definitely uh, a debate for bigger minds than mine. But yeah. you know, there are there are other digital epidemiology tools that provide more explicit that where people who use them provide a bit more explicit consent for their data to be collected and used for the sake of public health. There are tools like, you know, for example, COVID Safe, the the recently released app um, by the Australian yeah. government, which uses Bluetooth on your phone to, for contact tracing purposes. There's, uh, there are other tools like, for example, Flu Near You, which is a, an online free tool where people can enter in when they are experiencing flu-like symptoms and it generates a heat map showing where potential outbreaks of influenza might be in your area. Mm. Um, but these are quite different, right? Because people are people are actively submitting information. They're volunteering that information. It's very different to having your day-to-day behavior monitored by a big brother eye. Yeah. And I guess, like you said, like because the data that is incorporated is actively put in, there's definitely going to be gaps there. Like how effective COVID safe is would depend on how many people actually download that app and how effective flu near you is would really depend on how many people are firstly willing to download that app and also how many individuals are willing to then take that next step and put in their symptoms when they are feeling like they have the flu so that that heat map can be fully generated. I think that does bring into question how accurate, how representative and how comprehensive this information is that is being collected through these means. And when you lay it down like that, I think it becomes a bit clearer that Google Trends does provide a more passive means of collecting data, which is more consistent with conventional methods of surveillance, I would say, which, you know, I can see why it's a little bit more effective than your other apps. Yeah, absolutely. I think 
yeah, this is this is one of those things that will probably need to undergo some sort of public debate. I think mm-hmm. we as a society will need to decide where we're okay with drawing that line. You know, as you can imagine, like Google Trends uh, monitors people's data passively, but the benefit of Google Trends is that Google already has an enormous user base. You know, it's like they have something around 90% market share here in Australia. Yeah. So that that huge task of getting people on board with a new platform that would that was the same problem that was faced with COVID safe and with flu near you, that problem is pretty much entirely bypassed. So it's certainly a lot, a lot more convenient in that way. Um, but yeah, it's it's... Again, it's one of those questions that's, I think, beyond what you and I can really? <laughs> come up with, what you and I can yeah. discuss here, right, here, and right what now. We could offer, but I guess personal input into this is, like you said, with like marketing and whatnot, Google is already taking this information, whether we like it or not. It's all in that fine print. I think none of us are reading. There's so many rumors out there about what your phone can detect and how that is integrated into your feeds. I guess to an extent. Yeah that makes me a bit more okay with this idea of maybe this data could be put into better use than just mere marketing. Maybe it could have a more positive public health impact. So I guess it's all in the air. I can't say I know very much about this, but it's something I'd like to explore a little bit more. You've really opened my eyes to this whole new idea, this whole new world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I think I, I think I, I, probably feel along the same lines you yeah. know, if, if that if this, my data and you know my personal life is going to be if my personal data is going to be collected in this way i'd much prefer it goes well. towards furthering <laughs> public health rather than going to make google a profit that's it um yeah absolutely there are you know this is just one of a few ethical issues like you know for example with google trends models the methodology of how google trends models are made is not really well understood as of yet. And I noticed that going through putting together this literature review is that so many different researchers have lots of different ideas as to how these models can be built, how we identify the search terms that we want to use for our model, what kinds of algorithms we use to develop um, a particular model and extrapolate that to to non-sample data. Um, all that information is, is still very much... It's, it's kind of like the wild, wild west, you know, everything sort of goes and there's no, there's no strict rules to follow. <laughs> there's no strict ways, there's no strict rules to follow. Uh, so if we do implement these tools and if we do use them in a, a, a broader public context, mm-hmm. I think we do need to be a lot more cautious and be quite slow to roll them out to sort of see if we identify any unforeseen consequences or unforeseen challenges as they arise rather than sort of just rushing to make it you know, the hot new thing in the public health space, you know, this is, it, this is not um, something that is going to transform epidemiology overnight. It's definitely going to have to mm. prove its worth. And then the, the last thing, the, other, the last ethical issue we should probably touch on is cultural bias. You know, digital epidemiology and, and tools like Google search trend, the Google trends models, they tend to be developed by developed countries for developed countries. And so the digital divide makes it inherently the case that these tools tend to work better in more affluent countries, countries with higher internet penetration than countries on the other side of that digital divide. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another thing we need to consider is like, how can we make it so these tools are not just good for, you know, the, the wealthy people of our world and they can be a, a public health benefit for everybody. How can we cross that digital divide and that cultural divide to make sure that the kinds of tools we're producing 
are benefiting everybody and not just furthering inequality. Again, again, I don't have an answer to that question, but it's definitely an area uh, where more research is needed to make sure these tools can be uh, applicable no matter where the world, where in the world you live. Yeah, that's a good point. Because I mean, if we're only solving yeah. problems in the first world, then we're only really exacerbating inequalities. Um, so that is something that, yeah, I'd be curious to see what we could do more of and whether that would involve understanding the different search engines in different countries or yeah, a deeper con- cultural understanding. I can't say I have any of the answers, but definitely would like to learn more about that. So got to bookmark that yeah. in my brain. Um, <laughs> I guess now I've talked quite a bit and quite extensively on Google Trends. I'm wondering what some other uses of Google Trend are in health. You started off saying that it was initially quite a general search kind of feature that Google has incorporated in. Um, what are some other uses of Google Trends in health? Lots is my answer. <laughs> um, when I, when I, initially my idea for this literature review was going to be a, a much broader view of just how Google Trends can be used in healthcare research in general. But when I started getting into it, I found that there's so many different applications to this tool that it wouldn't be possible to cover any one of them in detail. So that's why I just focused on infectious diseases. But people have used this, people have used Google um, Google Trends to investigate things like, like public interest in public health campaigns and the success of public health campaigns. You know, if you do a campaign on uh, encouraging people to quit smoking, for example, one of the ways you might measure how successful their campaign has been would be to look at how many people have searched for quit smoking or search for your campaign in particular through Google. So you could use Google Trends for that as well. You could also in, uh, search for, you know, for example, the impact of a celebrity diagnosis of a particular disease and how that's influenced the public interest of a particular disease. And you could even use nearby states or countries potentially to use, use them as sort of a control of sorts using states and countries that haven't been uh, reached by this particular campaign and see how, how bit search behavior differs between two places. Uh, another use that people have used it for is uh, detecting seasonality of diseases. So looking at things like cardiovascular disease, um, mental health conditions, and seeing whether their, uh, their incidence changes through the year, depending on the season. Um, so this method is a, uh, I guess it's a bit more, um, it's a bit less nuanced. Um, this method probably couldn't find a definitive pattern in whether or not a particular disease is seasonal, but it could be potentially a stepping stone into further research. If you find some, some interesting trend and how people's search behavior changes throughout the year, maybe that would prompt you to investigate a potential underlying biological reason for that difference oh. in search behavior, um, or a social cause for something like that. So, yeah. In short, there are lots of other uses for Google Trends in health research. Infectious <laughs> disease, in investigating infectious diseases is just one of this is one of the many a cool huge list. Yeah. Yeah. No pressure here, but it seems like there's a lot of potential as well for a sequel to your Google Trends literature review. <laughs> we'll plant we'll that idea in there. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, you know, obviously literature reviews don't just appear out of thin air and you certainly have had the full AJGH experience with yours. So can you walk us through the process you went through in putting this article together? Yeah, sure. Um, Before this, I had no experience in academic writing or how to put together a literature review. So this is the first exposure I had to sort of the world of academic writing. This was a topic I was already interested in, but I didn't really know about how to 
actually get something formally published. So that was when, so it was around this time when I was thinking about like what I could do is when I saw a post on Facebook come up from the AJGH Facebook page with a call out for their new expression of interest pathway where first time submitters could get a bit of extra guidance in putting together a piece before it's submitted. And I thought this is perfect, right? So I I submitted the Google form. I filled it out with this idea I had. I sent it off. I didn't really think too much of it, but I got another email back a couple of weeks later from one of the senior editors at uh, AJGH, Maurice Sanito. And she was super enthusiastic about the idea. She shared me all these resources, all these links, an absolute star. All of these things could help my research. And I was like, this is, this is feeling very real now. (laughs) I don't really know um, what to do. But yeah, so Maurice met with me and we sort of discussed what an article like this might look like, uh, what a search strategy might look like, um, how it would be structured. I sort of got to work writing it. Um, and I would write bits and pieces, send them off to her and she would give me some feedback and ideas and I would put them in and I'd send them back and she'd give me more feedback and ideas and I would edit it. And she would also help me like troubleshoot any issues I had just appraising the literature, mm-hmm. any terminology I didn't understand or uh, anything like that. So, you know, at the end of this back and forth, I think we, we still have an email chain. I think it's now 60 emails or so long. Um, but yeah, she was from the EOI pathway. Hey, <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I, she was invaluable in the process. There's no doubt in my mind. I, I couldn't have written it without her. Absolutely. And you've painted exactly, so, yeah. you know, that picture that we're trying to achieve from this EOI pathway. Um, perfect segue into a bit of a shameless plug for our EOA pathway. <laughs> you know? um, it's a new initiative, like Dan mentioned. We started up this year for you know applicants seeking that extra guidance. So like Dan mentioned, the first steps are simply filling out your idea into that Google form. We'll then follow this up with some targeted resources and a consistent exchange of feedback and one-on-one sessions with our editors. Because we understand that writing manuscripts can be unnecessarily daunting, if, if not paralyzing. The paralysis stemming from that uncertainty on where to actually begin. So we hope to use this EOI pathway to kickstart some publication journeys. And it seems like it has been a very successful process so far. You know, I'm sure many other listeners there are feeling the same way, quite motivated, quite curious after hearing what you've had to say. So any last words? I encourage you to go to Google Trends type in whatever you feel like, investigate whatever you feel like, see if you can explore some keywords and find anything interesting. I mean, actually, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned this earlier, but the the reason I, the whole I, reason I came up with this idea was earlier this year, it was one of those days where we had um, during the bushfire season where Melbourne was just blanketed in smoke. Pollution levels were <laughs> through the roof. Yeah. And uh, I started to think, well, surely this has got to have an impact on how people are breathing. And so I went on Google Trends and looked up searches for shortness of breath. And sure enough, there was a huge spike in the number of people searching for shortness of breath. And I thought to myself, you know, this is really interesting. I wonder if anybody else has noticed something like this. And that, that initial discovery that just, I guess me being a little bit curious and goofing around on the internet was what kickstarted this whole path and sort of nudged me to, to write this literature review. Yeah. So I would say that if you are interested uh, in this sort of thing, go onto Google trends See if you can find an interesting pattern and see if you it, just be curious enough to explore it further. Take it maybe to your school's public health department. See if they're interested in looking at it further. You know, it, who knows where it might take you. Yeah. You've really brought up an important point about not having to be an expert in the field to actually 
learn more about it and to be able to write something about it. Um, writing literature reviews, research, feature articles, all that mix. You don't have to know what you're talking about in the first place. You can come in curious and the whole process is a learning experience and you can really draw so much out of it because listening to you today, Dan, I felt like you were an ex- expert in this field. Um, and it's crazy oh. to think that a couple of months back, it was just an idea that you wrote down on a Google form. Look at you today. You've got an article published in our first issue and I will just come into the end of the podcast with you. So really solid effort. I hope listening to Dan today has inspired at least somebody out there to do the same, um, get on there, search it up and, you know, keep your eyes peeled for when our next EOI intake is. So thank you, Dan. I can't wait. That's it. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you. So we've reached the end of another episode of the Global Health Chat. But before we close, I'd like to thank Anya for sponsoring our publication launch party. Anya is a company that prides itself on producing high-quality, reusable products for your everyday life. All Anya products are recyclable and at the end of their long life cycle. The side bag and product bags are made from a fabric manufactured from recycled plastic drink bottles. Their lunch wrap also uses RPET along with fully food-safe PEVA lining. So check them out online at onyalife.com. That is O-N-Y-A-L-I-F-E.com. All right, well, thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, stay safe, stay social, be distanced, and see you next time.